everybody, I'm Panicky in the UK and this is Panicky Pictures. <coughs> and don't forget your booties because it's cold out there today. It's cold out there every day. Uh, seriously though, if you can hear some uh, wind howling in the background, uh, that is not uh, special effects that I have added, that is the real weather. And similarly, if you can hear the hissing of a boiler, I am not turning off the heating, so uh, I hope that you can handle a little bit of uh, additional atmosphere. So, uh, today I am going to be talking about some films that have been released relatively recently on Netflix. One of them actually not released very recently at all. Funny Boy was released in December of 2020. But hey, I've been meaning to watch it for a while, and it's also uh, pulling double duty because I'm going to try and watch some uh, queer films, particularly films about queer history, uh, for LGBT plus history month uh, here in the UK. It is February. I'm aware that that's Black History Month in the US and possibly in Canada, and I think that their LGBT history month is in October, which is our Black History Month. I'm not totally sure uh, why. But anyway, uh, that's what it is. Uh, so yeah, so Funny Boy is kind of uh, pulling double duty there. And I will talk about it first, even though I watched it second. Uh, but that's the magic of podcasting. So I'm going to be doing Funny Boy, The Dig, and White Tiger. I did think about doing Malcolm and Marie, but I'm just so behind on life anyway. And also... Um, a lot of the stuff I've heard about it has not been great, and um, I didn't massively want to watch a movie that was not great right now. I even thought about doing Greenland, which I've actually heard surprisingly good things about, despite, I mean, I thought the trailer looked terrible. Um, but uh, trailers can be deceptive, as we'll be talking about in a moment. Um, I've heard really good things about Greenland. Obviously, it's not on Netflix, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, I did think about that, but again, I'm just so behind. I was really hoping to get this episode out uh, several days ago. And I'm really behind on my LGBT plus History Month watches. See, that's that's the official um, branding of the month. I would at least throw a Q in there, personally, but that's me. Um, I'm going with, um, with how it's styled uh, in the official channels, anyway. So, yeah, I, Funny Boy is the first film I've actually watched for LGBT, LGBT plus History Month. Um, I'm just super behind. I was ill and, uh, anyway, it's fine. Uh, so let's get on with it. First of all, I'm going to be talking about Funny Boy. A joyful secret. What's wrong with you? You're a pansy, a sissy, a fag. A minority with a majority complex. We don't want you here anymore. We love killing people, innocent people. Isn't that what you call collateral damage? I love you, Archie. I just can't. Hey, my family. Women and children were butchered simply because we are them. And you are different. The different is wonderful.
So I saw the trailer for this quite a while ago and it looked really great, but I didn't actually get around to watching it until now, even though it's been on Netflix for a couple of months. Um, it is set in Sri Lanka. I will just, I'm going to go out on a limb here um, and make myself a little bit vulnerable and admit that I knew almost nothing about Sri Lanka until very recently. I was actually listening to a radio adaptation of Edwin Drood, and there are a couple of characters who are Sri Lankan, or um, from Ceylon, which is what Sri Lanka used to be called uh, in Edwin Drood times. And um, so I looked it up, and I mean, honestly, to say that I couldn't have pointed to Sri Lanka on a map is not saying very much because I can barely point to France on a map. I'm just not good with maps. Like it's one of my absolute, uh, it's one of my biggest blind spots. I think geography and physics have always been sort of my two uh, sort of worst academic areas for sure. So that's not saying much, but honestly, I would have been just pointing in completely the wrong area. I honestly thought Sri Lanka was far more Eastern than it actually is. I didn't realize how close it was to India. Um, so, uh, this is all completely new to me, I'm very ignorant, and, uh, in that sense, you know, the film was really interesting, uh, in giving me a grounding in some of Sri Lanka's recent history, so it's set in the 70s and early 80s, uh, in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and, uh, first of all, you kind of have this... It's told in two episodes, really. And the first episode is when the uh, protagonist, R.G., is a young boy. And his aunt Radha, who has been living in Canada, is home to get married. And he also has some other relatives who've been living in England who are also there at the time. And it's really interesting, actually, because I think that you might imagine that there's a kind of simplistic East versus West thing going on in terms of kind of conservatism versus liberalism. And certainly Radha from Canada is very liberal, uh, whereas um, certainly RG's grandmother is much more conservative. But actually his aunt and uncle and his cousin uh, from England are equally conservative. And I think kind of encourage that pre-existing conservatism in the family, whereas his own parents are maybe caught between those two ideologies to some degree. So you don't have this kind of West equals liberal, East equals conservative binary. It's actually much more nuanced than that, which I think is really interesting. Um, But it's very clear that RG is effeminate. He doesn't like to play with his older brother and his male cousins. Unlike his sister, actually, who's very happy to play cricket, he likes to play with the girls, he likes to dress up as a girl, as a bride, in fact, he likes to wear makeup. Um, And this is a source of conflict within the family. Now, at the same time as this, RG's Aunt Radha is engaged to a Tamil Canadian man uh, through an arranged marriage, but she starts to develop this relationship with a Singhalese man that she's in a play with, that RG is also in. They're actually in an amateur production of The King and I. And essentially, RG's family are Tamil, uh, which is this minority group within Sri Lanka, which is kind of at odds with the Singhalese 
which is the kind of dominant majority group there. Um, so in this first kind of episode, you're setting up both the racial tension between these two groups and this kind of idea of forbidden love, which is then going to recur in the second part. Um, and then uh, you get on to the second part a few years later, RG is now a teenager, and he himself is falling in love with a Singalese boy from his class at school. And this is all against the backdrop of building tension between these two ethnic groups. And in this sense, in the sense that it's, you know, a coming-of-age drama from South Asia, and it is set against the backdrop of this kind of um, bubbling racial tension uh, that is coming to a head. Um, in that sense, it reminded me, actually, of a film called Nassim. And this is an Indian film set in 1992, in the days leading up to the destruction of the Babri Masjid. Um, so that film is about the tension between Hindus and Muslims um, at that time. And again, it's a coming-of-age story, uh, in this case about a teenage girl called Nassim. Uh, she's 15 years old. And there are these flashbacks or sort of fantasy sequences as her grandfather tells her stories of life before partition. So, in a sense, I think there are parallels there. But what I think Nassim does really successfully, which Funny Boy doesn't quite manage, is in respecting the audience's intelligence, really. The problem that I had with Funny Boy was just that there was really no subtext. Everything was very much on the surface. Everything was said out loud, you know? Oh, I think our son might be gay. We should do something to stop him from being gay. Oh, uh, Radha's fallen in love with a Singalese man. That's bad, because we don't like the Singalese, because we're Tamil, and there's tension between these two groups. And it just goes on like this throughout, you know, everybody just kind of speaking the subtext. Nothing is allowed to go unsaid. Um, and I think that that's why this film never quite emotionally engaged me, even though I found the content very interesting. I do think that the romantic aspects work quite well, but I think that's much more to do with the performances and with the direction than it is to do with the writing. Most of that is in kind of touches, glances, facial expressions not so much the dialogue between those characters. So I was really looking forward to this film. I thought the trailer looked absolutely great, but unfortunately it just didn't quite click for me because I just felt that it wasn't it wasn't able to tell the story in a way that felt authentic. It felt like everything was being over-explained, and I suppose it's that show-not-tell thing um, that we get beaten into our heads. Uh, it just wasn't quite successful in doing that. On the other hand, you know, I think it was really interesting in showing that Argy's family, despite being Tamil and part of this minority group, were to some degree insulated from the violence and the danger that the other Tamil people were facing because they were financially privileged. Um, so it is kind of interesting in terms of looking at that intersection between, 
you know, being a minority group ethnically, but then also having financial privilege and the balance of that. But having said that, it doesn't ever really show us the lives of people who don't have that financial privilege in any great detail. You have a couple of scenes, you know, there's one scene with a butcher, and again, the butcher really lays it all out in the dialogue. Um, You know, it's fine for you to speak Tamil because you have money, but I'm poor and I'm stuck here. Uh, Really laying it on thick. There's another scene in a boarding house where you sort of see what it might be like for people who are less financially well off. But on the whole, it really is set amongst this milieu of very privileged people. So although it flirts with that idea of relative privilege, it doesn't really dive below the surface in exploring that. And I think that is generally just the problem with the film, is that it's all very surface level. And it just doesn't leave enough up to the audience's imagination, I think. So that was a real disappointment for me, unfortunately. Because as I say, you know, I thought the trailer looked great. In terms of the content itself, I thought that the whole thing was really interesting. And that's another train, I'm sorry. I live right by the railroad tracks. I don't know if I'm on the wrong side or the right side, but uh, I'm right on the tracks. Uh, Anyway, so yes, sadly, Funny Boy did not live up to my expectations, which is just one example of how trailers can lead you astray. But there we go. I wouldn't say that it's not worth watching. I mean... As I said, you know, it gave me this real kind of education in Sri Lanka that I didn't have, shamefully. And as I said, I think the romance works well. I think it's pretty well directed. It's um, well performed, you know. I think Agam Dashi as Radha is great. And she's been in some great stuff, too. I'm just looking um, at some of her roles Uh, She was in Colossal, which is just a fantastic monster movie from 2017 with Anne Hathaway. And, uh, oh God, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Jason Sudeikis. Oh, and Dan Stevens is in it as well. Um, I wanted to say Dan Stevens, but I was picturing Jason Sudeikis. I don't know. Anyway, but she was in Colossal, which is just fantastic. Um, I actually don't remember her in that, but anyway... Uh, She was also in You, Me, Her, um, which I like. Again, I don't remember who she was in that. I don't remember that much of the show, um, but I just remember the first season or two being pretty good. But what I do remember her from is The Magicians. She played Janet Plachinsky, who was the kind of alter ego of Margot when she was put under a spell to hide her from the people who were, like, hunting down the fairies. I forget. Um, you're probably getting the impression my memory isn't very good and you'll be right but anyway I do remember her from that and um, I shouldn't have a huge amount to do in The Magicians but at least I do remember that she was in it but anyway she's great in this Um, and uh, oh man she was in Sanctuary as well I remember that yes I remember her from Sanctuary and not very good but kind of fun um, sci-fi fantasy thing about all of these monsters it was kind of it had kind of like an x-files vibe and then it was a little bit fringe it wasn't as good as either of those but you know kind of fun yes she was in that oh my god anyway she's been in a bunch of stuff um my brain is dying so uh i had forgotten but anyway but she's great in this so i would anyway my point is i would praise the performances uh in this movie to a degree i would praise the direction i mean they're quite this it seems to be handheld um, 
camera work. And there are quite a lot of scenes where it starts off high and then it kind of tilts down quickly. And I'm not really sure why. Um, I don't really understand exactly what um, the idea behind that is. But on the whole, I would say that it's, you know, solidly directed. I think it's really the screenplay that lets it down, uh, unfortunately. So uh, there we go. Uh, a very mixed response to that film. Uh, all right, let's move on now to The Dig. Wars looming, more all hands are on deck to excavate before hostilities begin. The Dark Ages are no longer dark. Everyone's going to want a piece, and this is your find. Why else will you be playing around in the dirt while the rest of the country prepares for war? That means something, doesn't it? From the first human handprint on a cave wall, we're part of something continuous. Life is very fleeting. I've learned that. It has moments you should seize. A man could dig the earth his whole life through. Not find anything like I've discovered here. So this is all about the Sutton Who excavation led by Basil Brown uh, on the land of Edith Pretty in 1939. And actually, interestingly enough, this is another film that's kind of set on the eve of war. So Funny Boy is set mostly in the run-up to the Sri Lankan Civil War and, of course... Uh, the dig is in the run-up to the Second World War. And I think that this is really significant. You know, obviously uh, it's it's based on a true story and it really did happen uh, just before the outbreak of war. Uh, but the film very much, I think, makes the most of this idea of kind of impending mortality. And um, that's a big part of the kind of thematic heart of the film. The film stars Carrie Mulligan, Ray Fiennes, Lily James, Johnny Flynn, Ben Chaplin, uh, Ken Stott and others. So for the first hour or so of this film, I was really on board. I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. I think Ray Fiennes is great in this role. I always think Ray Fiennes is great. I'm a really big fan of his and I'm generally a big fan of the films he directs too. I really like his Coriolanus. Um, I really like The Invisible Woman. Uh, I was more on the fence about The White Crow, to be honest, but uh, generally I think he's a really strong director and I think he's a great actor. I mean, I saw him in a National Theatre production of Antony and Cleopatra recently, which I thought was a bit rubbish, but I did think he was solid in it. But, you know, generally speaking, I think he's really, really strong and he's great in this. And I think what's really interesting about this is it's giving him the opportunity to do something I'm not sure he's ever really done before. I don't know that I've ever seen him play a working class character uh, with a regional accent before and I'm struggling to think of any examples. I know that he's done accents in, for example, um, Made in Manhattan, uh, where I think he does a pretty atrocious American accent and 
I think quiz show he was doing an accent too. It's a very long time since I saw that, so I don't remember if it was any good. But generally speaking, you know, he kind of speaks in his own voice and he tends to play roles that are kind of upper middle class and up. So I think that this is kind of new territory for him. Um, I have family in Suffolk and I have to say that I thought his accent sounded really good to my ear. And, you know, I mean... It's not just about the accent, right? It's about the performance too. It's about the physicality of the performances. You know, the accent is is just one element of that. But if the accent is wrong and as an audience member you pick up on that, I think it doesn't really matter how good the rest of the performance is. It can really put you off. And in this case, I felt that that, you know, was not an issue at all. Um, I think he gets it spot on as far as I can tell. And... Also, just his performance in general is fantastic. Carrie Mulligan, equally great. Um, I'm a really big fan of Carrie Mulligan. I know that there is a little bit of beef right now between her and a variety critic, and um, I would say that based on what I know, I think the variety critic's point about her, this was in Promising Young Woman, he kind of says that Margot Robbie would have been a more sort of natural fit for the role and that Carrie Mulligan basically the implication is that she's not as naturally sexual which I think is an odd thing to say um I kind of understand what he's getting at but I also think that probably he could have phrased it much better or just not gone there um I think that she seems to have taken it a little bit out of context and maybe gone on a little bit of a campaign that is a little bit unfair or out of proportion. So, anyway, um, but setting that aside, um, I do think that she is absolutely great in this. And, you know, based on what I have seen of Promising Young Woman, you know, the trailer, the promotional materials, you do really see how much of a chameleon she is, because she's playing much older in this film, uh, and doing it very successfully. Now, she is considerably younger than uh, Edith Pretty was, and that role originally would have been played by Nicole Kidman, but she dropped out. I mean, this is a complicated thing, because I think that, on the one hand, when we talk about um, older women in Hollywood struggling to get roles, I don't think Nicole Kidman is one of those people, you know? I think she's doing fine, and I also don't know if she would have been really right for this part of course it's hard to say for me Nicole Kidman can be really hit or miss um but you know I think Carrie Mulligan does a great job but you do also have to weigh that against the fact that Ben Chaplin and Ken Stott are much older than the real life people they're playing so what you end up having is two women, Lily James and Carrie Mulligan, uh, who are both, you know, young and attractive, uh, one of whom is playing much, much older, and then you have a much larger ensemble of men 
at least two of whom uh, are much older than those characters. So you have a male cast that is skewing older and larger, and a female cast that is skewing younger and conventionally attractive and small. You know, two, basically. Two uh, significant female characters um, in this film. And I think that what makes this worse is that on the actual dig, there were in fact two female photographers. And those two female photographers have been completely erased from history and replaced with a totally fictional Johnny Flynn character to act as a love interest for the Lily James character. Uh, Lily James is playing Peggy Piggott, who was a real archaeologist who worked on this dig. Um, I'm not the biggest Lily James fan on the whole, but I think she's fine here. I do have a real problem with the storyline, though. Partly, you know, it inserts this fictional age gap between Peggy Piggott and Stuart Piggott, her husband. It inserts this fictional love interest. And it also makes Peggy Piggott out to be much less experienced than she actually was. Um, in reality, she was a very experienced archaeologist at this point already. Here, it makes it out as if she's a complete ingenue, no real experience, and only brought on board um, because of her weight, um, which is a really kind of, I think, bizarre choice, given that it's fictional. I mean, I assumed that this was true um, when watching the film, and, and that was fine, but given that it's actually not true at all, that is a weird thing to write. And, you know, I have heard people defending this plotline, the uh, Johnny Flynn, Lily James plotline, as feeding into this theme of mortality, and of seizing the day, and of, you know, doing with your short life... Uh, what you can to make yourself happy, etc. Yes, I think that's true. But I think there are many other ways of going about making a, a subplot that resonates with that, other than erasing two of the only women who were part of that dig, inserting this unnecessary heterosexual storyline, and sidelining a queer storyline. Um, so, you know, you could easily have, if you're going to fictionalise things anyway, you have a queer storyline here, you could so easily have told a version of that story with these queer characters, and that would have been something that we hadn't seen before, necessarily. That might have been something interesting. And it it would have got rid of the problem of, of completely erasing these two women who were really there. You know, so I, I just think that that's been done in a really problematic way. And I think that part of the problem here is that the dig, the film, is based partially on the um, historical record, but it's also based partially on a novel by John Preston, who is actually the um, nephew of Peggy Piggott. So, you know, I think that's the reason why she's so centred in the narrative in a way that, to me, doesn't quite work. They have corrected some of the things that Preston has done, Preston, in the novel, sort of falsely gives the idea that um, it was the professional archaeologists that identified the site as being uh, Anglo-Saxon rather than Viking. Actually, it was Basil Brown, both in the historical record and in the film. 
Um, and I think that's quite right. You know, Basil Brown is essentially this outsider. He doesn't have a formal education in archaeology. And his kind of outsider status is shared with Edith Pretty, who has... And again, this is an interesting thing that maybe resonates with Funny Boy a little bit. She has um, financial privilege. She has wealth. But as a woman, she has essentially been prevented from accessing the education that she would have liked. She has this outsider status and she shares that with Basil, who is kind of excluded on the basis of class and wealth, um, or lack of it. Um, So they both have this kind of outsider status and I think that works really well. And I think the fact that the film really makes an effort to emphasise that Basil Brown knew what he was talking about is very important and that's something that the novel doesn't necessarily do but I still think the fact that the film is at least partially based on this novel which you know puts Peggy Piggott right in the centre compromises it and I think it's a real shame uh, that that subplot and that fictionalization is there Um, I think it's a real, real misstep. It's not to say that you couldn't have had Peggy as a significant character. I think it just should have been done in a more interesting and thoughtful way that didn't sideline queer characters, that didn't completely erase two women who were actually there in real life, you know? So I, I just think that that's a real shame. Um, on a technical level, I think there's some interesting stuff going on. On the one hand, I think the cinematography, the film is actually shot in Surrey, uh, not in Suffolk, but it does look like Suffolk. It does capture those kind of big skies. So it captures the landscape, or simulates the landscape, in a way that I think is very effective. But it has a real kind of washed out feel. It's very kind of brown. It's got a real sepia feel to it. And also there were a few shots that to my eye looked a little bit overexposed. I am far from being an expert on this stuff, so I am very open to being corrected. But it just kind of had a washed out look to it that I wasn't quite sure if that really added anything. I wasn't quite sure why that choice had been made. And then in the editing too, there were some choices that I wasn't sure about. So... There's a scene that's kind of broken in two. It's a scene set in a car, a very emotional scene. And then it cuts away to something else. And then it returns to the car scene. And it's achronological. And I'm not totally sure what the intended effect of that is. I found it slightly jarring. And there's another thing that happens in the edit, which is this consistent use of sound bridges and kind of asynchronous sound. Now, again, I've heard an argument that this is to denote um, a kind of silent communication between the characters that shows their growing bond. But I have to say, I mean, I would have to go back and watch the movie again, I think, to see whether that rings true. But on my watch, it certainly didn't create that effect in me. I just found it a little bit odd and jarring. I just found myself kind of thinking, why have they done that? That's weird. Um, and, you know, it's entirely possible that that was just me uh, being a dum-dum and, and missing the point, totally willing to believe that. But all I can say is that my experience was not that it created that effect in me. My experience was that 
it created a, an effect of sort of confusion, essentially. It does sound like I've been very critical of the film, and my feelings about it are actually very mixed. Um, as I said, I think that Ray Fiennes and Kerry Mulligan are fantastic. I think the first hour of the film is just great, and I think there's th some stuff at the end which is also very moving. I just feel... I think that that subplot is really misjudged essentially. That's the big, big issue that I have with it. I have some questions about some of the technical choices that have been made, but they don't ruin the film for me, whereas the Peggy Piggott subplot, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that it ruins the film, but certainly it doesn't work for me, and I think it's a shame because I think there are other aspects of the film that are so, so strong, particularly, you know, that relationship between Edith Pretty and Basil Brown, depicted by Carrie Milgan and Ray Fine. So I think are the real standouts of the film, um, not surprisingly, because they're both fantastic. Um, I love seeing Ben Chaplin. Um, I've been a big fan of Ben Chaplin for a number of years. He's He's never in very much. I remember seeing him. He was in um, The Borrowers when I was a kid, the BBC adaptation uh, of the books. I liked him in that. Um, I think he was in The Truth About Cats and Dogs, um, which is a film that I have a little bit of a guilty affection for, partly, I think, just because I like Ginny Garofalo so much, and also because it uses a Paul Weller song that I really like. He was in Me and Orson Welles, which I rewatched uh, pretty recently, and, and now in this. That's kind of all I can think of that he's been in. I'm sure he has a much more illustrious career than that, and I've just missed it, but he doesn't seem to show up in a lot of stuff. And when he does, I'm always really pleasantly surprised. Um, I do also actually want to mention Archie Barnes as Edith's son Robert. Um, I think he does a great job. Child actors are always tricky. I think that's another thing in Funny Boy where... You know, in the first part, there's quite a lot of reliance on child actors, and they are sort of of varying levels of talent. Um, man, that feels like a mean thing to say about a bunch of kids, but it's just the truth, you know, that can maybe break immersion. I think that Archie Bonds is really fantastic, um, so that's a lucky bit of casting, I think. So yeah, so I essentially have pretty mixed feelings about this one. I still think it's really worth a watch. I just kind of feel like it's two films, one of which I really like and one of which I really don't, um, and that's just a bit disappointing. But there was one more thing that I just wanted to mention, which is one thing I thought was really interesting about this film was you see things like practice blackouts. I had no idea that that was, that was a real thing. Um, that was complete news to me. I didn't realise that that was something that was kind of being practised before war actually broke out. And that's really fascinating to me. So I do think it really kind of captures this sense of just being right on the brink of war. Um, and and that's really well done. So um, I, it's kind of a hand waving back and forth in the air on this for me. It's not a thumbs up. It's not a thumbs down. It's a... Uh, um, but, you know, if in doubt, I would say give it a watch. Um, I think there are great things about it. I just had a few issues, uh, particularly with some of the more fictionalised elements, as I've said. Uh, Alright, so that is The Dig. Hey, driver! I'm Pinky, nice to meet you. Well, Ram, have you ever seen a computer? We had many of them in the village with the goats. Okay, the goats so. are pretty advanced to use computers. Okay, now you're being a jerk. I didn't like the way he had spoken about me. Since I was a boy, the desire to be a servant. Yeah! had been hammered 
into my skull. I Balram Halwai. I drove the car. I was alone in the car. They made me sign that confession. I would have to become a creature that gets born only once every generation. The white tiger. And finally, we have the white tiger. Uh, the most recent of these films to drop on Netflix, and I'm actually recording this almost immediately after having watched it, so uh, these are thoughts fresh off the top of the dome. It is entirely possible that my feelings might sort of start to shift a little bit after I've had a little bit of time to reflect, but these are the brand new thoughts that I've had straight after watching it, so um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, so this is uh, a film directed by Ramin Barani. It's an adaptation of Aravinda Diga's novel, uh, also called The White Tiger, and it stars uh, Adash Gaurav and uh, also Rajkumar Rao and Priyanka Chopra. And essentially this is the story of um, an Indian boy from a low caste uh, who becomes a servant to a kind of westernized uh, son of a landlord and then from there gets drawn into some very dark things which he ends up turning to his advantage. Um, so I think that, first of all, comparisons to Parasite are inevitable and have been coming thick and fast. And I, I think that's completely understandable, you know, it's a class satire, um, it's about a driver, um, it's about, uh, you know, a servant who uh, manages to grasp some of their employer's power, um, and, you know, it's coming within a, well, within 18 months or whenever. I mean, Parasite came out in the UK roughly this time last year, I think, or maybe only a tiny bit before. Um, and I know it came out in other places earlier than that. But, um, but you know, it's, it's not that long after Parasite was so massively successful and obviously won the Oscar and all of that great stuff. So Parasite is still very much uh, in people's consciousness. So it completely makes sense that people would make that comparison. I do think that this film is very specific uh, to India, to that cultural context. So, you know, there are certain things that can't really be universalised about it, whereas I think that maybe Parasite was more able to be universalised. Um, the White Tiger seems very pointed towards certain aspects of corruption in India and the caste system drawing on ideas of kind of Indian history, you know, its status as the world's largest democracy, but what does that really mean when there's still so much poverty and corruption? You know, all of these things feel very um, specific uh, to India itself, whereas I think Parasite was something that felt like a more universal story. Having said that, I think that in some ways, potentially, the class politics of the White Tiger might be sounder than those of Parasite. Um, Boots Riley criticised um, not so much the film itself, but I think some of uh, Bong Joon-ho's comments about the film, that it was ambiguous as to 
who the parasites were in that film. And I, I think that, that Boots Riley was also kind of criticising the fact that that was, uh, that it was true that that ambiguity was there. And I, I'm sympathetic to, to his criticisms. Uh, and I think that the kind of rage towards the ruling class and their corruption, their cruelty, their hypocrisy, apart from anything else, you know, I, I really felt that while watching this film. And so in some ways, I think that maybe what it's doing is a little bit angrier and more urgent than what Parasite did, even if I think it's maybe not quite as well constructed and maybe doesn't have the same kind of universal appeal. Uh, but apart from Parasite, a couple of things um, that it reminded me of. Okay, so one of them is Life of Pi, and I totally understand that that might seem like a very cheap surface-level comparison. Okay, you know, both of these things are based on novels, they both have Indian protagonists, and they both use not only kind of animal metaphors and symbolism, but tiger metaphors. But actually, it's not entirely about that. It's actually about the structure of it and the way it's narrated. Um, particularly in the very beginning, uh, when Balram is talking about uh, religion, you know, it very much seems to have echoes of Life of Pi, but also in the kind of the way that it's structured as somebody recounting his life uh, from later on. I know that that's not something that is at all unique um, to Life of Pi or uh, to this. I mean, you know, this is a, a trope that we see again and again, but it, it did just remind me of that. There are also, I think, a few shots fired at Slumdog Millionaire, which um, I think is very fair, to be honest. Uh, it's a long time since I saw Slumdog Millionaire, but I remember having mixed feelings towards it at the time at best. And since then, you know, the more I've thought about it and the more I've heard it discussed by actual Indian people or, you know, people of Indian descent in the diaspora, uh, the more I think that it's actually a very problematic film. And, you know, even not just in terms of kind of representations of India, but also in terms of, you know, a story about an escape from poverty. You know, it's it has a very problematic element that I think doesn't really take into account the class politics that this film is examining. Although, again, it's a long time since I saw it. Maybe I'm being unfair. But I think that that's... Um, that you know, the the sort of implicit criticisms within this film of Slumdog Millionaire to me seem more than fair. I feel like the pacing is really interesting. It starts off at a real breakneck speed and it's very, very immersive and it just really keeps rolling along. And then I think it kind of hits a point maybe two thirds of the way in or somewhere around there where it just kind of feels like it stalls and it slows down and mm, maybe starts to lose some of the energy that it had built up, some of the momentum um, that you had early on in the film. And I don't know, uh, the ending, I, I wouldn't say that the ending is unsatisfying. I think there are some really strong elements to the ending, but I just wonder if it's missing something that would have really tied it all together and just made it really pop. I don't know what that is, but I, I just wonder if there's something that could have been done that just would have, I don't know, just just made it that much more satisfying. Um, so I do think that maybe it does start to lose steam towards the end, 
but you know, I really going back to the uh, the narration. I think that you know people talk about voiceover narration as a crutch. I think it completely depends on execution. Voiceover narration can work brilliantly, and this is an example of it working really well. And there are a couple of moments where what the narrator, the sort of quote unquote present day Balram, although it's actually 2010, uh, and what the 2010 Balram is telling us doesn't line up with what we're actually seeing on screen and I think those moments are really effective and go to show what an unreliable narrator he is and how actually there's a real darkness at the core of this character which is really interesting which I think kind of resonates with the fact that he perhaps ends up becoming what he hates so I think that that's done really really effectively Um, Another thing that I would say, although I do think, as I said, that this film is very, very specific in its satire about India and problems that are particular to India, or not particular to India, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the satire is broader than that, but, but certainly there is a specificity there. But, you know, one thing that it really made me think of was, although, of course you know, the caste system in India and the difficulty in escaping poverty for somebody of a lower caste and, you know, uh, inequalities in, in wealth and level of education, I would think it's fair to say that they're much higher in India than they are in this country or in the United States, possibly. However... Do you think there were certain things that really did remind me of of kind of working in the customer service industry or in shit jobs, essentially, where, you know, you have to paste a smile on your face all the time. You have to like the job. You're not allowed just to be doing it for the money because there's something grubby about that. You know, there's not something grubby about, you know, making people work a shit job and not paying them enough and often... Uh, you know, having an incredibly toxic work environment that you, you know, try to make up for with free pizza or God knows what. There's nothing grubby about that. But if your employees were to admit that they're there just to earn some money uh, and, you know, not because they absolutely love it there, then, you know, that would be them really letting the side down. So (laughs) there were moments that did just kind of uh, remind me of of, uh, working miserable jobs. But again, you know, I think that on the whole, the satire is quite grounded in in the specifics of India, even though I think the point is made that maybe some of the things that we demonise about India, and maybe this is something that in talking about this, you know, I've I've been doing the same thing of saying, well, you know, it's not as bad here, it's not as bad in the West. Maybe that's not true. Um, but you know, I I think that part of the satire here is saying, you know, and I, I do think that this is aimed primarily at a Western audience, I do think it's fair to say that, you know, you kind of other India and other third world nations as being places where there's a lot of poverty and where it's very difficult to escape that poverty, and yet actually that is true in, you know, so-called sort of first world westernized nations too, um, that, that those things, you know, actually aren't unique 
necessarily to the third world. I don't know. I again, Like I said, this is all off the top of the dome. Um, so maybe I need a little bit more time for those ideas to kind of coalesce properly. But yeah, I think a really fascinating film brought up a lot of things for me, um, full of ideas, really emotionally engaging in a way that Funny Boy wasn't for me. Not perfect, loses some steam um, towards the end for sure, but I think of these three films that I've spoken about, I think this is the one that overall works the best for me despite you know a couple of things that you know maybe let the film down a little bit um i think it's really bold as i said i think it's really angry it's really urgent and it's a real thinker um so i'm really glad that i saw it and it's probably my top recommendation of these three films um probably the one that is most worth watching I certainly wouldn't tell you not to watch The Dig or Funny Boy. I think, as I said, The Dig has some really lovely moments in it. There's a lot to like. I just think that the subplot, as I said, is very misjudged. And Funny Boy, you know, for me, the emotional engagement wasn't really there. The The dialogue wasn't what it needed to be. But at the same time, it, you know, gave me a lot of information about Sri Lanka that I didn't have. And... You know, I think it in many ways is solidly put together, even if I didn't think that the script was up to snuff. So none of these films would be getting a thumbs down from me, but um, The White Tiger would be the one that I would give the most confident thumbs up to. All right, uh, let me know what you thought of this episode or any of those films at Panicky Pictures on Twitter, at Panicky in the UK. Uh, on Letterboxd. Um, I will put those down in the description. Actually, what I'll do is I'll put my link tree down in the description, and then you can click on that, and then there will be links to all the different places where you can find me. So, uh, you know, you try that out. I don't know. I hope that you are having a happy February so far, and uh, yeah, shoot me a tweet if you want. Uh, Let me know what you think. All right, see you guys. Cheerio.